This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I'm so glad that you're here. In today's episode, we are going to talk about why cleaning can be so difficult when we're depressed. Also, the reasons that we can be depressed and still function at work or at school. Then I'm going to talk about how we actually go about processing. What does it mean to process our emotions or our traumas? And why we often want to retreat to our rooms Um, when we don't want to deal with other people in our home. I'm also going to talk about what what I do when a patient of mine who has an eating disorder doesn't want to let it go and how we can rebuild trust with our therapist after a really difficult session. So let's just jump right in. Question number one says, Katie, why is cleaning so hard when depressed? On a scientific and maybe spiritual level, this can be your room, your body, your car, etc., And question number one says, Katie, why is cleaning so hard when depressed? On a scientific and spiritual level, this can be your room, your body, your car, etc. And there are a couple of add-ons onto this, but let's just jump right in. Now, there's a couple of pieces that could be leading to cleaning being so difficult. Number one is the fact that depression makes us lethargic, meaning we don't have any energy I don't know if anybody has ever felt this way, but like, you know, when you're kind of tired and you know you still need to shower or make food for yourself, and it just seems like this insurmountable task, we're like, oh, I just, oh, there's so many steps involved in that. That lethargy can make those actions seem just exhausting and overwhelming, and so we don't want to do them, number one. So that's lethargy. Also, depression takes away our hope for a future, our excitement about anything, and can just make everything seem unimportant. So the the where maybe when we weren't depressed, like an undepressed brain might look around in the home and be like, oh, I should pick that up really quick. I'll do that because I don't want to trip over it tomorrow. I know that sounds really silly, but that hope for tomorrow, that thought about I don't want that to be a problem for me then can motivate us to clean. So those are two key pieces there. And the lethargy being the, I think, the greater of the two when it comes to that. But we do also know that as it's, it's like a snowball. So as we get depressed and we don't have the energy to clean like we wish we did, dirty dishes start to pile up. We haven't showered in a few days. Our laundry's laying everywhere. Not only are we depressed and we don't have energy to do those things, but then as that piles up, it causes the release of, the release of a stress hormone, cortisol, and essentially compounds on itself. So there's a ton of research. I actually did a little little deep dive for you guys. Um, but research in 2016, research in 2020, they have a, a link between messy rooms and people and depression. And they also find a connection between clutter in your home and depression. 
And then there was also a study where it talks about how those messy rooms release more cortisol and therefore make us feel worse and can exacerbate our depression. So in many ways you can say, well, which came first, the, you know, the chicken or the egg? And I would argue that it doesn't really matter where it started. Having a messy space, whether it's your car, your home, your person, isn't good for our mental health. And not having a good mental health can make it even worse or start that problem. And so I wish I had a better answer where I'm like, oh, this is what causes it. But you can see it kind of comes from all directions. That's why it's so incredibly common. One of the things that I usually ask my patients who are suffering from depression, complex PTSD, BPD, any of the things that kind of come with this downturn of mood, I always ask them when they last showered or when they last did a load of laundry. And that's not because I'm judging them or saying that they smell. It's because I want to know how well they're able to keep up with their hygiene because that piece is really important. And obviously, um, science helps support that, that you know, depression is linked to messiness or struggles to keep up with our overall cleanliness. Um, another person asks, so these are add-ons, it says same, but I have autism as well as depression. So we're going to get into this a little bit more. And even when I break tasks down into smaller tasks, the number of things that need that I need to do just seems so overwhelming that I struggle to get started. But I'm the same with everything I need to do. Even trying to prepare a meal seems so difficult. I break it down into small steps. And then in theory, I should be able to do it, but I just can't. Is this the executive dysfunction from my autism or it, or is it a lack of motivation from my depression? And how can I push past this, especially when my energy levels feel so low, like I'm a phone with my battery warning on, like I'm pushing my way through each and every day. And by the way, I'm on an, on an antidepressant already, and I've been on a variety of different ones since 2012 and even reached a max dose and none have helped me so far. Okay, this is a piece that, I want to dig into is the executive dysfunction that can come with uh, diagnoses of ADHD or autism. And I, I'm sure there's other diagnoses that it correlates with as well. Those are the two that are the most common. And what do I mean by executive dysfunction? I actually wanted to create a video explaining what executive function is, is the fact that we can put together these steps that require us to accomplish a task. Those of us without that struggle don't probably don't really understand. Meaning that if you show up into your kitchen, you're like, oh, I need to make something for lunch. You open the fridge and you're like, what do we have in there? Mm, okay, you look at things. Mm, I could make a sandwich, you decide. Okay, so you grab some bread, you grab some uh, lunch meat, vegetables, you know, condiments, whatever you're wanting, blah, blah, blah. You, and think of all the steps that I've just mentioned to you. You have to go into the kitchen. You have to look into the fridge. You have to put something together with the ingredients that you have. Then you have to pull those things out. Then you have to prep the ingredients. Then you have to put the ingredients together into a sandwich. Then you have to sit down and eat it. And I know this all sounds very, very simple, but even in the putting the sandwich together, there's a ton of steps. Maybe I want the bread toasted. I got to toast that bread. Then I need to put my mayonnaise or mustard or whatever Dijon on there. Those are another steps. I got to wash the lettuce. I got to dry the lettuce. I got to put the lettuce on. You can see how it just becomes overwhelming. And people with struggles in their executive functioning, each and every one of those steps is an, a huge hurdle to overcome. It feels overwhelming to even think about it. And a lot of people will sit frozen, struggling to figure out what that next step should be and trying to find the motivation to take that next step. So that could also be why cleaning our home and keeping everything together just feels overwhelming. And breaking it down into smaller tasks is one of the things that people who specialize in, you know, ADHD and autism tell us to do, that that is the most beneficial. But even then, 
not necessarily so much with autism, but my ADHD patients on their way to do one task will start four others and then get overwhelmed and want to stop. So having someone who can help you understanding how your brain works and how your ADHD or autism affects you is going to be key. Working with someone who understands and can help you through it with the right tools is going to be incredibly helpful. But when it comes to this specific question, that could definitely be why keeping things clean is difficult. And the energy level being low, I would 100% correlate to your depression. I'm not saying people with autism don't get tired, but that's not a symptom of autism. You wouldn't say, oh, they have ASD because they're tired. They feel lethargy. So that goes back to that first piece that I was talking about, how when we have depression, we're lethargic and doing anything feels overwhelming. I'm not talking about the freeze that can come along with executive dysfunction where you're like, I don't know which one to do next. Uh, we just don't want to do it. That lack of energy to do things, I believe usually comes from our depression. And so I would let your therapist and your psychiatrist know that you're experiencing this because the fact that you've been on an antidepressant already and it's not really helping you, we need to find something different. There are also other options, right? Like antidepressants are a piece of it, but a lot of my patients found adding on an atypical antipsychotic was effective. Ask your doctor about this. Ask about side effects. Be more informed and take a more active approach to your treatment. I also know that many members of our community and many of my patients have found relief going on a stimulant like a Vyvanse or an Adderall to help with their depression and their motivation. I'm not saying, I'm not a doctor, so you have to talk to your psychiatrist, but ask about other treatment options and let them know, hey, I don't have energy. I've been on different ones since 2012. I went to the highest dose with this. Nothing's helping me. Let's try something different. Speak up because I want you all to feel like you can clean your home. You can prepare a meal. There's going to be days where none of us want to do that. I don't want to do it every day either. But more days than not, I want you to feel like there's an ease about it and you're able to accomplish it, break it into smaller tasks, do the things you need to do so that you can take care of yourself. Okay. And there's another ad on it said, how do you know that cleaning is hard because of depression or ADHD? That's what I was just talking about. Is it the steps leading up to it or is the lack of motivation altogether. Not the freeze of like, I don't know uh, what step to take. It's more like, this just seems overwhelming and doesn't seem worth it. When we have depression, again, it's that lack of that hope for tomorrow, the struggle in seeing a future where this is going to be important. If that is what you're experiencing, that's coming from depression. The struggle to start a project because it seems like there's just so many steps to it unless it's like new or novel or you have a like a time crunch like oh this is due and I'm gonna be held accountable those are two of the reasons that ADHD can kick us into gear and we can stay focused and motivated but just notice those things you can tease it out for yourself but that lethargy that lack of interest or motivation usually comes from our depression and the feeling of being overwhelmed. And the next part of their question says, where does the feeling of being overwhelmed come from? It can come from a lot of places. It can come from burnout. It can come from ADHD and all of those steps that you feel like it's going to take to accomplish something. It can also come from our world and living today it can feel very overwhelming. Could be that we're super stressed. You know, it could come from a lot of different places. So depending on the time and the situation when you feel overwhelmed, Ask yourself, where do I think this is coming from? What's going on in my life? What am I experiencing? What symptoms are bothering me most? You have all the answers. Just think about it. Okay, let's move on to question number two. And that question says, Katie, can you be functional, they use air quotes, functional at work and deeply depressed at the same time? Sometimes I wonder if I'm just lazy when it comes to things that aren't required of me. No, 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 that's not what's happening here. 
Um, there's a beautiful quote, and I wanted to start off with this because there's a beautiful quote to help us figure out whether we're being lazy or whether we're maybe depressed or anxious or overwhelmed or frozen in our executive dysfunction. And that is, if you were being lazy, you'd be enjoying yourself. And I want you to let that sink in. I read it on Instagram. It's a meme that someone created, but it's true. Being lazy means we're like relishing in the, oh, so nice to just do nothing. Be lazy. Ooh, so enjoyable. Burnout is when we struggle to do things. We're so overwhelmed, we can't. Depression means we struggle to be motivated at all. See the point of anything. Everything feels like way too much work, right? That's not laziness. Those are symptoms of something else. So ask yourself, am I enjoying it? Does it feel good? Then it might be laziness. My guess is it's not. But the question, can you be functional at work and deeply depressed at the same time? 100%. I have an older video and maybe it needs to be regurgitated, like maybe redone. I wouldn't say regurgitated, that sounds terrible. But redone, revamped. Um, it's about highly, it's like, I think it's seven signs of high functioning depression. And I feel like some people don't like the term functional and they get really offended. But the reason that we use that term is about functionality in your life. It's the way that we as clinicians and other medical professionals figure out what level of care people need. And so it's not done as a way of putting people down or, you know, putting people on pedestals. It's more about a level of function in your daily life. We talk about function at home, school, or work with our friends and family. Those are all important areas of functioning. And this person is saying they can function at work, but nothing else. And that's incredibly common. And the reason is, is that we like are white knuckling through life. We're, we're so depressed, but huh, we're holding on. And so we use all of that focus and energy. We dig deep down and we do everything we can to do what we need at work or school. And then by the time we get off or we're finished, we're exhausted. We have no energy left for anything else. Everything else seems just way too overwhelming. And the reason that we're able to do that a lot of times is because we have to feed ourselves. We have to pay for bills. And the kind of the adult or logical part of our brain takes over. And I was like, no, we have to fucking get this together. We need to show up. And so don't think that just one area of functioning in your life looking good or doing well means that we are doing well. A lot of the comments on this question was like, oh my God, me too. When I was like struggling with suicidal thoughts, I did the best I've ever done in business, right? And it's it can also be just as a random side note, it can be what we call sublimation. And sublimation is a coping skill. It's a defense mechanism. It's a way that we take when we feel really bad, we take that bad feeling or the struggles that we're having and we turn it into action that is helpful for us. This could be like turning all of our anxious energy into exercise and we get really fit or turning all of our focus to work so we don't have to think about, I don't know, difficulties at home and we get a promotion. And unfortunately, our society, you know, supports that because it makes sense. If you're working really hard, you should get rewarded. But sometimes we're doing that as a distraction from from what's really going on in our lives. And that could be what's happening here too. And so I just want you to know that, yes, you can be completely functional at work and still deeply depressed. One area of functioning is not enough for us to say, oh, you're doing great. We have to look at all three. Remember, I said at work or school, that's the one that you have that's on lock. Friends, family, so relationships. How are those going? If that's not good, it's not good. And then 
also your ability to function in your daily life, like taking care of yourself, like cleaning your home, making meals, that kind of functioning. So in like basic self-care stuff, right? We're going to look at these different areas of functioning and see how we're doing. If we're only doing one, that doesn't mean that we're doing well. And that doesn't mean that you're not depressed. You know how you feel. You're just white knuckling it. And it's incredibly common, unfortunately. Hence why I have that video, the the signs of high functioning depression, because people overlook it a lot and feel like, oh, everybody must feel this way. You know, when I'm working so hard, of course, I'm tired when I get home and nothing else seems to be worth it. But it's still depression. Okay. Let's move on to question number three. It says, Katie, how do you process, it's a great question, emotions and traumas? I've been told many times I need to deal with emotions and process them instead of ignoring them. And it makes sense, but I don't understand how to do that. Any info would be greatly appreciated. I am completely lost at the moment and everything is just overwhelming. Okay, we have one add-on on this, but this is a great question. And I unfortunately use that term a lot. And I'm sorry if I have not clarified what it means. When we talk about processing emotions, let's start with emotions and traumas. It's very similar, but processing emotions means instead of trying to move through them real quick, like, oh, I felt sad and distract. Instead of stuffing them down and pretending they don't exist, or instead of wallowing in them so much so that we cannot function, we can't get out of this hopeless, helpless, overwhelmed place, instead of any of those three options, when an emotion happens, we identify it for what it is. Maybe we consider where it came from. Like if I'm feeling, and this will happen to me quite a bit because I definitely am like a highly sensitive person, but just the other day, I was like sitting on the couch and I'm like, I just feel really like bad, like something bad happened. Like I did something and I thought about it. I'm like, I haven't even talked to anybody today. I haven't done anything. And I was like, ah, I was watching this show and this is how silly, but I'm just putting it out there in case you can relate. I was watching a show where someone had been really hurtful to someone they loved and it just, well, I didn't like it. I changed the channel. I watched something else on Netflix that had jumped into me. And so I felt that emotion. And so in my head, I was like, it's not even mine. And I pushed it away because I was like, you know what? That's not mine to have. I don't like that feeling. And it's not part of my life. Now, for the rest of us who experience emotions that are related to ourselves and our experience and situation, it's okay to consider, hmm, I'm feeling kind of sad. I wonder why that is. Maybe we can journal about it. Maybe we can just think, like pontificate to ourselves. Maybe I'll feel sad because like I lost uh, my grandma and papa in the last few years. Or maybe I'm sad because it's a a new year and I just don't feel very motivated. Or maybe I'm having an issue with a friend or a family member or whatever. Where's my sadness coming from? Let me think about it. Let me allow myself to feel it. Maybe I need to cry a little bit. Maybe I need to cry a lot. Give yourself some time. And there will come a time where you kind of feel exhausted by it and we move on. I always tell my patients, if you're really uncomfortable and it's hard to feel things, try to feel it for five minutes. And if that's too much, try to do two minutes, right? But if we can keep going, you want to do about, you know, 10 minutes. No feeling. The thing about feelings is it's interesting is we know through research, they call it amplification, but it's essentially when we try to pretend something doesn't exist and we like push it down when it comes to emotions, feelings, experiences, we try to push them down. We try to pretend that never happened. They only get stronger. 
And the reason is, is because we're feeling thinking beings and we need to get that out of our system. When we experience things, our system cues up to take action or to run away or do something, fawn, freeze. We, it, our stress response is triggered and we have to understand it, give it the space to tell us what's going on and either assuage our fears like, oh, there's no threat here or feel it through. Oh, it was really sad and I am sad. We have to give ourselves an opportunity. Otherwise, if we stuff it, it's only going to get stronger and that amplification will happen. And so the way that we process emotions is to allow ourselves to feel them, experience them. It doesn't have to be forever. I would say like 30 minutes max is usually what I tell my patients. Don't let yourself get wrapped up in it unless we're grieving or there's a big thing that's happening. Then we can set aside more time. But you know, for us early starters who don't really like to feel things, give yourself a couple minutes identify what the emotion is. You can use a feelings wheel or something like that. And where do you feel it in your body and what thoughts come up as a result of it? That's the process. It's just trying to acknowledge instead of stuffing it down. And traumas is no different. When it comes to a trauma, we try to acknowledge what's coming up for us. Where are we feeling it in our body? What do we think this is attached to? And we try to talk it out as much as we can. Now, I would encourage you to do that work with a therapist because we can, by accident, re-traumatize ourselves by going through it like that. So, doing it in a safe space where you have coping skills to calm your system down, all of that's going to be incredibly helpful and make it more safe. So that's how we do it. And your knee-jerk reaction is going to be to ignore them. You might need to set aside time every couple days to be like, hmm, what am I feeling now? And just tap into that. What's been going on today or yesterday? Can we give ourselves an opportunity to acknowledge it? Because we might not even realize that we're stuffing it down. That's also incredibly common. So be patient with yourself. And hopefully that gives you kind of a little roadmap on how to move through it. Okay? There was a comment on this that said, does the way you process emotions change depending on if the emotions are due to present triggers or past traumas? Thank you. No, it doesn't change. It, the only thing that's really going to change is your identification of where it comes from. And maybe how intense the emotion feels. Because remember what I said, the more we stuff it down, the more amplification, that it feels bigger. It can get bigger. And so if things have been suppressed and pushed down for a long time, those experiences might find like might feel really, really big. And that's why it can be really hard for us to t- finally talk about the trauma that happened when we were little versus the trauma that happened like three years ago. Because that one when we we're little feels bigger because we've push it down, push it down year after year, day after day, moment after moment. And so it can feel a lot bigger. Uh, So just give yourself some time with that. But it's the way that you do it isn't going to change. It's just essentially how you might experience it. Okay, let's move on to question number four. And this question says, Katie, I find myself retreating to my room a lot as a safe space when I don't want to deal with others in the house. Is this an unhealthy way of coping? Great question. And the truth is, at face value, no. It's okay for us to limit our time with other people and to protect our own energy and space and just be able to self-sustain, right? It can be self-care to do that. The thing that I want to caution you against is isolating yourself from people who are supportive and who care about you. And those are really important. People who are supportive and care about you. Doesn't Family doesn't necessarily mean that they're supportive and care about you. Friends doesn't necessarily mean that. A romantic relationship doesn't necessarily mean that. So check in because the one thing I will tell you is that when we're depressed or when we're feeling burnt out or overwhelmed, 
We don't want to connect with anybody else. And that can be because we just don't have the mental energy to have conversations right now because we're burned. Or it could be that we just want to protect everybody from our own depression. We're like, I'm such a mess right now. I don't want to get that on anybody else. I'm going to save you from me. We do that. That's when it's unhealthy. We need each other. We need connection. I know a lot of people would like to think, oh, we don't. It's fine. Mm-mm. I have a video coming out soon about the ways that we self-harm like invisibly. And one of those is through isolation. And so while this isn't at face value an unhealthy way of coping, we should all protect ourselves. Boundaries are important. If we find ourselves isolating to the point where we have no outside support, we have no one we can talk to, and we you know, just do everything on our own, that's not good. And this could be a sign, like I said, of depression. It could be a sign that we're burnt out. It could be like we were talking about earlier when we're just white knuckling it through life and we're functioning, but we can't do anything else. So we might want to assess why this is. Is it because we have so much stuff going on in our life and we're feeling so bad and we can't cope? Is that why this is happening? Or is it that, you know, we are struggling with depression and we just, we feel so there's lack of energy, stuff like that. Or is it the fact that these relationships are super toxic and we don't want to spend time around them and make us feel worse? You know, consider where it's coming from because that will tell you whether it's healthy or unhealthy. Because again, in summation, boundaries are great and healthy and can protect us. Isolation is not. Okay. There was a comment on this as as an add-on. I can relate to this kind of tactic. I find myself being overwhelmed when I have company, such as my daughter and granddaughter or son-in-law and daughter-in-law visiting, or even a friend of my husband and his girlfriend, etc. All people that I basically enjoy. However, I seem to have limited tolerance for social interaction, and sometimes I feel myself getting emotionally triggered, and I feel a strong need to retreat to my room for a bit, or busy myself away from everyone in a different room or another part of the house. Is this normal? I always feel bad doing this, and I feel like I start to silently wish that they would leave early every time that we have company. I hate that I feel this way. I think maybe, though, that this is different than um, what the questioner is asking about. It sounds like they don't always feel safe, and I feel safe. I think maybe I feel overwhelmed. I just don't know why these interactions do this to me now when they didn't used to. I think it started about three or four years ago. The insight you have is beautiful. We know when this started three to four years ago, and I agree with you. It sounds like the person who asked the original question feels safe, but maybe not. But you do. And that's, imp- that's a key piece. That's really important. And three to four years ago, what shifted? Because a big part of me wonders if this overwhelm is coming from burnout or depression or a combination of the two. When we feel like we don't have much tolerance for social interactions, that can come from a lack of resilience. That can mean that, you know, maybe our social battery is just not what it used to be. I also want to say that three to four years ago is around COVID time. And not to bring everything back to COVID, but that really messed a lot of us up. And I'll even speak personally that I don't have the social battery I used to. It's hard for me to interact for that long. I'm like out of practice. That muscle is like totally atrophied, right? I have to work it out again. And so I would encourage you to just consider, you know where it's coming from, probably even as I say this, do we think that we're burnt out from work or home life or something like that? Maybe we were depressed. Maybe we're struggling with anxiety. Do we think it's coming from someplace like that? Or do we think it's because we haven't been doing it very long and we get exhausted? And if that's the case, then I encourage you to set up like, I don't know, little get togethers, maybe not at your home, but let's schedule some hangouts with, you know, 
our daughter, granddaughter, with their son-in-law, daughter-in-law. Let's set those things up. Let's go grab coffee. Let's go grab lunch. And I want you to do this. We're kind of like trying to build that muscle back up little by little. And when we meet out doing something else, there's usually a pretty reasonable time frame set on it. Like if it's coffee or lunch, it's like an hour or two. And I want you to slowly start growing the amount of time that you can spend with them. You could even say, oh, and I have to leave at this time. I hope that's okay. You know, when you get there, just tell them I, I have to have a meeting. I have to go blah, blah, blah. So that you have a hard out. And then let's just start doing that more and more with more regularity. Because part of me wonders if we just feel like so burnt out from life, so overwhelmed that we don't have any resilience or part of me wonders if maybe we just haven't been doing it. So it's like we forget how. But the fact that you said you were emotionally triggered makes me wonder about your resilience. It makes me wonder where this is coming from, but those are just some of my thoughts. So you see which applies to you and hopefully that gives you an idea of how to manage that. Because if it's coming from depression, burnout, anxiety, any of those things, let's reach out to a therapist in your area. What you're dealing with is very common and something that can be managed. You don't have to keep struggling like this and feeling so bad that you don't really want to interact. But we've all been there. We've all felt that way. Reach out and speak up, okay? It can get better. Let's move on to question number five. It says, hey, Katie, how would you react if you had a new client who engages in disordered eating but doesn't want to change their behaviors? I started seeing a new therapist three weeks ago, and it's been going well so far. I have so many things I want to work on. Last week, I told her a few details about my disordered eating behaviors, and she said that we can definitely dive into all of it moving forward. However, I'm not really ready to let go of what I'm doing, restricting, binging, purging, excessive exercise, counting macros, etc., because it's been a really effective distraction or coping skill for all of my other struggles, like my quiet BPD traits. I know that I'm heading down a bad path, but I just want to lose weight and I don't want to be stopped. I'm afraid that my therapist won't want to continue seeing me if I'm honest about my unwillingness to change my eating specifically. I'm so ready to work on countless other things in therapy, just not my eating. I'd love to hear your thoughts on all of this. Thank you so much. This is a great question. It's incredibly common. And I only grin because I've had so many patients feel exactly like you. And I love that you're ready to work on countless other things, just not this. And that tells me that this is your strongest coping skill, that this is the only way you know how to like numb out and distract. So we're going to have to give you better coping skills so that you don't feel like you have to distract so much. We're going to have to learn how to manage those quiet BPD traits. I'd assume this is a symptom of that. But all, all to say, I wouldn't stop seeing someone. Your therapist is not going to stop seeing you. I don't think I've had ever in my life an eating disorder patient who wanted to get rid of their eating disorder and was just wanted to get better. Now, people will tell me they want to get better, but then when the work comes, they do not. It's hard. It's normal to not want to. It, again, it's like a it's like a rescue raft. We have to think about our eating disorders and our other, you know, unhealthy coping skills in that way, that they're like rescue rafts that we used to save us from something terrible, to help us avoid some really uncomfortable emotion. It's okay to have those. It makes sense that we don't want to let go. It's just the process. It just takes time. Be patient with yourself because as a therapist, I've always thought it's almost like you've been out at sea your boat crashed and you've been floating in the ocean and you found this raft, your eating disorder, and you got in this raft and oh, it saved your life. Thank God. Oh my God. All I can think about is this raft. Thank you so much raft. And we float around and then you end up next to my boat 
And I'm like, hey, I see you. I throw a rope. I pull you in. I'm like, get on my boat. And you're like, no, 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 no. This raft saved my life. I can't leave this raft. And I'm like, leave the raft. You don't need it anymore. And you're like, no, 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 no. I need this raft. I need the raft. I can't, no, I can't leave. And so I pull you and your raft into the boat and you're still clutching to the raft because you're worried about the next crash. You're still on a boat in the ocean. You don't feel safe yet. And it just takes time. I know that's a weird analogy, but that's kind of how I've always visualized it is like we slowly have to regain trust in ourselves and regain trust in our environment. And that takes time. We have to build that. We have to better understand our quiet BPD and how to manage those overwhelming symptoms. We need to better understand the people in our lives may process some traumas. Why did that happen? How come I acted in that way when it did? How come I don't have memory of this? We have to take our time to try to figure that stuff out. Don't rush yourself. Just be honest. Be as honest as you can. Your therapist is not going to stop seeing you as a result, okay? And there was an add-on. It says, how do you deal with not being taken seriously because of it? I only told my therapist nine months after beginning therapy that I have issues with eating and I lied in our first session in her questionnaire. After asking more questions, she told me I displayed bulimic behavior. I feel bad for saying this, but I really want the label. I want her to say I have an eating disorder. Why is that? Because we want validation. We want someone to say, I see your pain. And that's a big part of therapy is saying, I see you, I hear you, you're important. And the reason that we want that for our eating disorders, because it feels like the big piece of who we are. So speak up and tell your therapist about this. Yes, I know it feels like you're like ripping out your insides and showing them your most vulnerable pieces, but that's a, a really important piece for you. That's something we need to talk about. I have a feeling in your life that this isn't the only situation where you don't feel seen, heard, or valued or validated. That's why we're looking for it in therapy. And I think when we're looking for labels and we're looking for, you know, someone to not minimize our problems to like, yes, to validate them, it's because we need someone to see our pain. We feel so invisible. Feeling invisible can be really painful and really terrible. And so we're trying to like, see me. I feel bad. Do you know I'm here? I know people always say, oh, they're doing it for attention. And we've gotten this, it's gotten a bad rep to need, to need attention or do things for attention. We all need attention. Some of us just never learned how to get that by just saying, hey, can I talk to you? And so we do it in other ways through self-injury, eating disorder behavior, gambling, uh, drug addiction, alcohol addiction, sex addiction, shopping addiction. We do other things. And I know some of you might say, but I don't really do this for attention. It's our only way of speaking. It's the only way of saying that we're in pain. We just try to do whatever we can to express that pain. And so you wanting your therapist to say that you have an eating disorder is you just wanting them to acknowledge that you're in pain. Let them know. Uh, so many people lie about their eating disorder behavior. I've had patients that are like, I don't know, I've thought about it, but I've never really engaged in it. Come to find out they've had like a raging eating disorder since they were like 12 years old. It, it's okay. It's very normal to lie to our therapist. Just do your best to slowly open up and be honest and let them know that you want the label. And you can even say, I'm not 100% sure why. Talk that out. It's okay. What you're experiencing is incredibly common, okay? Nothing's wrong with you. It's very normal. Final question, question number six says, Hi, Katie. My question's about rebuilding trust with my therapist after a tough therapy appointment. My therapist told me that her clinical sense of things thinks that I would benefit from an inpatient eating disorder treatment. I feel that. I have to do that with patients all the time. I'm a teacher, and could not even imagine taking more than a couple of days off because I'm sick or I need to take a personal day. 
I worry that she will judge me for continuing outpatient treatment with her. I'm also worried that my honesty with her could be impacted. I f- it felt like a blind side, but I also acknowledge that my eating disorder is being threatened, hence why I'm feeling so defensive about it. Any help or advice would be amazing. Thank you. Now, I know your question was about rebuilding trust, but I have to tell you that you're a teacher, so maybe we do it in the summer. Okay, it's January. Let's plan for June. Um, I have a ton of patients, especially my eating disorder patients in particular. Don't like to take breaks. Don't like to take time off. Oh, how indulgent of me, right? I would assume without even knowing, I don't think you said anything about this, but I'd assume you're a restrictive type because our my restrictive types don't like to spend money on themselves, don't like to take time for themselves, don't want to let anybody down. My bulimics are a little more impulsive. I'm not judging. I'm just saying usually those are kind of like personality traits that go along with our eating disorder and why particular signs or symptoms or behaviors are the ones we tend to lean towards. Let your therapist know this felt like a blind side. You tell them what you told me. You recognize that your eating disorder is being threatened and that's probably why you're feeling so many emotions and so, so threatened, right? Remember, it's your raft. It's your safety raft. You're in the ocean. You're like, oh my God, I could have died and this thing saved me. I can't let it go. What if life throws me more accidents, more pain, more things I need to float my way out of? How am I going to do that? We get angry. We like don't want people to save us. Ah, leave me alone. I'm doing fine out here, even though we're not because we're drifting farther and farther away. But the question was not about that. (laughs) I just had to throw in my two cents there. But to rebuild trust with your therapist I want you on your own first to start journaling about that session. I want you to kind of process it through a little bit. And I want you to imagine that you're telling me about it. Telling me what happened. Telling me how you felt about it. Does that help you see it a little more clearly? Because the piece here that hopefully can help rebuild this trust is that your therapist isn't trying to throw you to the wolf. She's not trying to hurt you. She's not trying to to harm you in any way. She's actually trying to look out for you. It's just hard sometimes for us to accept the help when it feels really threatening to let go of that life raft. It's hard sometimes to admit that the thing that we've been using to help ourselves feel better is now harming, is like hurtful, right? It saved us. How could it be hurting me now? But then imagine going through your whole life with like, you know, water wings and a tube around your waist. It's going to get in the way. People are going to look at you weird. Why are you still doing that? What? She was safe from the ocean 10 years ago. Why is she still holding on to that? Right? And I know that's maybe a weird analogy, but it is getting in the way of you living your life. There's a reason you're in therapy. There's a reason that you're struggling. You admit, you know, that it's you felt threatened, that the eating disorder felt threatened. And that's all important to just process it out for yourself. Write about it. Pretend you're telling it to me what happened. And I want you to think, to consider, was my therapist attacking me or was she trying to get me care? Was she judging me or was she trying to ensure I get the support I need? Ask yourself some of those questions because I think in there is the trust that honestly is already built. It's the eating disorder that has kind of raged right now. And it's like, ah, fuck her. Get her out of here. She's only going to mess with us. She doesn't know what we've got going on. This makes us special. This makes me unique. This is the only thing that works for me. She doesn't know that. She doesn't get it, right? Our eating disorder can say stuff like that, but consider we got to check our facts because our eating disorder only lies. I know we can't believe that, but just I'm going to tell you anyway, your eating disorder only lies. So do some of that looking into it. Write about it like you're telling me. And I want you to consider, 
You know, what's trying to hurt you? What's trying to help you? And let me know what you come up with, okay? There was an ad on it says, how can I build trust in therapy? As a childhood sexual abuse and childhood emotional neglect survivor, I really struggle with trusting people. Take, like, give yourself time. First of all, well, there's two steps, really, and that's kind of why I stuttered there. Sorry. First step is I want you to find a therapist whose office feels warm and inviting and who you feel like you could at least show up for. I know we might not ever feel safe. I don't like to use the word safe, especially if that feels really triggering. We want it to be more neutral. Can you find a therapist who doesn't trigger you immediately? That's the goal. That's the first step. Then the second is to be honest about the fact that it's hard for you to trust people and it may take time and then give yourself that time. We could even journal and try to come up with, well, what do we think are the the easier things to talk about? What could I tell them about that wouldn't feel so like, ooh, you know, too much, too deep? Let's write those things down. Let's start there. Let's see how they navigate and manage that basic information that feels okay for us to share. Are they warm? Do we feel seen and heard? Do we feel important? Okay, maybe we can take it one more step. Little by little, give them an opportunity to prove to you that they are deserving of your trust. We don't have to just offer that to people just because they're therapists. If it doesn't feel safe or neutral, we don't have to do that. So give yourself the time and space. And again, strive for neutrality, maybe not safety, and make sure at least their office and just their overall being feels okay. Medium. Okay? Give yourself time. It takes time and it's okay. Thank you all so much for listening and watching. Thank you for sharing this podcast. It really does help. Have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your week. Do your homework and I'll see you next time. Bye.